should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, 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 welcome. Happy Monday, October 3rd. I can't believe it. I just wrote my rent check and I put October. It's already freaking October in 2016. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Thanks so much for joining me. Kenny, my young nephew, who's also our producer here on the Michelle Miao Show, is in studio, smiling, happy to see you. You're not sleepy. You Normally, you're kind of sleepy, like, right now. Uh, <laughs> I had a long day yesterday. <laughs> yeah. We went to the game. The, the, the Niners. Yes. We should clarify it. So you went to the Niners game. Did you have a good time? Uh, yeah, that was an awesome time. It was actually my first game ever. Ever football game? Yeah. Wow. So you behaved, people around you behaved. I don't know. I hear at football games, people yeah, do it, not behave, even <laughs> if they're like 90 years old. Yeah, it gets rowdy out there. Yeah. yeah. So th- did the Niners win? Sadly, no. Oh. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, we, we had a good that. start, and then we just started falling off. Did you witness Colin Kaepernick kneeling? Or mm. I don't know. I ask that of every game nowadays. We, <laughs> we missed that part. We were still trying to find our seats. Ah, uh, because yeah. it was, yeah. yeah. It the was, world was. forgives you. It was your first game ever. <laughs> so uh, I got your text uh, Saturday night, and I just wanted to let you know, um, <laughs> you text me while my, my girlfriend was breaking up with me, by the way. What? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. <laughs> See how the whole like text message thing, you never know. You never know what's going on through somebody's life. <laughs> you could tweet them. You could Snapchat them. But, uh, you know. That was that was my weekend. Um, wow. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm sharing with the whole world now my personal life, uh, and uh, uh, you know, but it's fine. I think it, it, it's it's really fine. And and when you're 34 years old and you go through through a breakup, you're you're just happy that all of the crazy ones and the ones that didn't work out when you're in your 20s and you were crazy yourself, you just appreciate an adult breakup. So. Um, anyway, I just wanted to let you know that's why I didn't text you back. <laughs> but but I, but I did take care of your request, and we don't have to talk about that on the air. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you had a good time at the Niners. I'm sad that they lost, and uh, RIP to, to my relationship as well. <laughs> However, we still have this radio show, and that's the yes. good thing about Michelle Miao is, is I still like that, you know, I'll get in here and I'll do the show. We have a great fabulous show for everyone on progressive voices network today so let's get today's program started today's show is brought to you by pacific fertility center when life needs a little encouragement pacific fertility center will be right by your side visit pacificfertilitycenter.com our next guest is in studio isn't that amazing normally all of our guests actually are over the phone or via skype and uh so i always get so excited when that person is here in studio because it changes the dynamics and i already 
have connected with her and truly believe that we're going to be best friends forever. (laughs) Our guest is in studio, and she is author Marcy Gallo, who has a a book out, No One Helped. And this book examines one of America's most infamous it's the 1964 rape and murder of Catherine Kitty Genovese, and in, in, in this happened in uh, New York. So, Marcy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, and thanks for the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's uh, San Francisco coffee, too, by the of way. Of course. And, and the whole pod was compostable, biodegradable. All right. True San I would Francisco. expect nothing less. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about your, your book here, which I absolutely appreciate, because if we didn't have the book, I think that a lot of people would forget this story, period. Let's talk about what happened to Kitty. What happened? So Kitty, who is, uh, uh, who was a fascinating character, um, was in some ways really different and in some ways very um, kind of representative of other young ethnic women of her day. So she's Italian-American. She's raised in Brooklyn. um, But at a fairly early age, she decides she is not going to live the life that was sort of mapped out for her, right? Um, be an office worker or maybe um, help in a family business. Uh, Instead, she struck out on her own um, and always stayed connected to her family, but ended up managing a bar. And for a young woman to be managing a sort of a working class kind of sports bar, they didn't call it that then, but uh, a bar in a you know, working class, a little bit rough area, but but she ran the place. Um, the other thing I loved about Kitty was that she drove around New York City in 1964 in a red Fiat. Another thing that for me screamed rebel, like, who is this person? Well, unfortunately, she also came to the notice of a, a guy named Winston Mosley. Um, they were about the same age, about 28, and he spotted her uh, on um, Friday the 13th, about 3 a.m., uh, in March of 64, driving home from work uh, by herself. Uh, he had, um, this was a guy who had never been in trouble uh, with the law. He had seemed to be a little bit odd, but nothing criminal about him. Follows her and proceeds to um, chase her up the street after she gets out of her car near her apartment stab her repeatedly. Um, When a neighbor yells out, leave her alone, Mosley runs away, but then he comes back. And in the meantime, Kitty has made it around um, the corner into an apartment of a friend nearby. And uh, his door is open. She collapses on the the entryway of his apartment, but Mosley comes back and finds her. And uh, that's when he... Uh, continues to stab her, uh, rapes her, and then uh, runs away because another neighbor um, uh, sort of intervenes, uh, calls the police, comes to Kitty's aid. Now, this could have been a story, a horrible, tragic story of an awful crime. Um, But two weeks after the fact, the New York Times made it a story about nobody caring. That's why I called it No One Helped. Um, When they gave it front-page news uh, two weeks later, they made it a story about these uncaring neighbors who watched her die and did nothing, which was absolutely not true. And at the time, I was like, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. 
I read the story. I grew up not too far from New York and read the story in, in, and saw her photograph. And I was like, wow, my dream is to live in New York when I grow up. Is this mm-hmm. what could happen uh, to a woman by herself who's kind of living life on her own terms? So for me, and I think as I wrote the book, many, many, many women talked to me, especially women of a certain age who said, yes, it was a cautionary tale. It told us that we could not depend on anybody to come to our aid if something horrible happened to us. And I think that that's what the Times intended. I was just about to ask, that was my next question. Why would they write an article, you know, about this and and um, and be inaccurate? And, you know, do you think that race also had to play into this? Did uh, uh, being different during that time, did that contribute you know, perhaps to the sensationalism of the article? Absolutely. Great questions. Um, So Kitty's Italian-American. Her uh, rapist and murderer was African-American. They're both about the same age. And very quickly after the murder, um, it becomes obvious that her roommate, Marianne, was her lover. Uh, Marianne actually identifies the body. She's sleeping and waiting for Kitty to come home. Um, and then instead of Kitty, she's awakened by the police who are like, uh, something terrible's happened and we need you to come down to the, to the hospital. Um, so almost instantly, race and sexuality enter into really the silences around the, the true facts of the story. Um, and instead, as I say, the emphasis is not Kitty not Mosley the killer, not even the fact that this was a lesbian situation and maybe that's why he went after her, none of that. Instead, the, the emphasis becomes the neighbors. The reasons for that are really complex, and that's why it took me almost 10 years to write the book. Um, part of what's going on is a lot of uh, protest and activism, especially around civil rights issues in New York City, but also around the country. It's 1964. People are on the streets, they're joining groups, they're mounting protests. And in New York, it was especially intense because there had been decades of promises. Yes, we'll start easing up on jobs. Yes, segregation in in educational change, and nothing is shifting. So activists are getting really, really pissed off and, and more and more militant around the kinds of things they did. Two weeks before the murder, there's this huge protest where a bunch of school killed children, 2,000 of them, stay home from school in a massive protest. So when I looked at the newspaper and actually looked at the physicality of the layout of the day this story appeared, on top of of the fold is a story about racial uh, struggles intensifying, right? So one of the things that I think led to the emphasis on the neighbors rather than either the victim or the perpetrator is this idea that people were um, becoming apathetic. Mm-hmm. And when the editor of the Times is told about the murder by the police commissioner, the commissioner says, hey, man, I've got a story for you that's one for the books. My people, the Queen's police officers, went to try to understand what happened to this girl, and none of the neighbors would help. None of the neighbors would talk to them. Wow. <laughs> That's really scary considering the New York Times and and the credibility of the newspaper, especially during that time. 
I mean, you know, you could argue the credibility today, but during that time, I think a lot of people read the New York Times as it, as their go-to, their source for news. That absolutely is, the, <laughs> you know, uh, behind-the-scenes agenda that completely paints your entire perspective in a, in a different way. What do you think? I mean, I think you alluded to it. You mentioned, you know, what uh, young women had said to you uh, in terms of the worthiness of their life um, in, in a neighborhood like Queens or something like that. But what do you think happened to the rest of everyone who was reading into mm-hmm. this story, mm-hmm. especially given the political context? Mm-hmm. And you really nailed it. The, the power of the New York Times, especially then, was unparalleled. They were, they're known as the gray lady because they are this like battleship of, of truth, right? They, they ruled coverage um, of, of almost every story. And at the moment that this story is crafted, a new editor is taking over. Um, he, his name was A.M. Rosenthal, and he was legendary. He was there for 40 years, and he really shaped the way the Times told stories. This is an example of what's really not a news story at all, but more like a feature, but it's treated like a news story and mm-hmm. given front page prominence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. So he's sort of changing the way the newspaper has been reporting things, and he's giving, there's, so there's much more impassioned language that's being used, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is he's trying to increase readership. The Times is suffering from a decline in circulation. <laughs> uh, it's always about the Benjamins, right? Oh. And so they they are looking for ways to bring back readers that they're losing to some of the other dailies mm-hmm. um, who covered the story very differently, by the way. Um, the third thing is what I mentioned is around the civil rights protests. Um, so people are seeing all this evidence of organized activism. And so Rosenthal goes a different way, encouraged by the police, to say, well, what about personal responsibility? How, how many of us actually look out for our neighbor? Forget for a minute about joining these, these big mobilizations and these campaigns. How about person-to-person responsibility in terms wow. of how you look after one another? Crazy deflection. <laughs> That's Crazy worse than, deflection. than uh, you know, it, Let me the add story something. gets even better. Yeah. But we're, I think we're going to take a quick break. Okay. But when we come back, we'll continue our discussion with author Marcy Gallo and her new book, No One Help. Don't go away. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do. 
especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Monday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, our special in-studio. That's right. In-studio guest is author Marcy Gallo, and we're talking about her new book, No One Helped, which is the story of Kitty Genovese, who was murdered in 1964, and uh, the story of her murder uh, gets very bizarre in the way that the New York Times reports the murder, which pretty much silences her as an individual and also of her alleged attacker, um, and then, you know, used, in my opinion, uh, as a, uh, a way to drive a whole new different narrative. Exactly. And, and what was that narrative, just to remind folks? The narrative was that she um, was attacked and, and brutally murdered while her neighbors watched and no one helped her, in a nutshell. Uh, it turns out to absolutely not be true. And the interesting thing about it, Michelle, is that that story caught fire. It m- resonated with people at all levels for decades. And whenever somebody failed to do something to stop or prevent evil from happening, it was referenced. It came up over and over and over again over the years. And I think that's one of the reasons I was so compelled to sort of explore it further. If it had been like a one day or a one month or even a one year story, mm-hmm. okay. But it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Because people, it, and in addition to women, as we talked about, it hit everybody in a way of, oh my God, is this what we're turning into? Mm-hmm. People who just don't care about each other. Uh, well, we can still ask that question today in 2016, but <laughs> going yeah. back to this specific story, I mean, you know, what was the outcome or the impact of everything that happened overall? I mean, like you mentioned before the break, it took you 10 years to write this book. And I'm wondering what additional research mm-hmm. or uh, maybe some interviews or any other facts that you might have uncovered that we have we will know today by reading the book that we may have forgotten or didn't know before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm a cultural historian, right, and a, and a historian of social movements. So I I I come to this story with an activist background and an activist orientation. So um, the fact that, as I mentioned, so much is going on politically uh, and and culturally at that time. I couldn't ignore that. So a lot of what I did was read newspapers. I read the Times um, for 40 years plus, um, and I read a lot of the day-to-day coverage and paid particular attention to the visual, how were things presented to people. 
I also went to the New York Public Library and spent hours and days and weeks there <laughs> reading through the New York Times collection and the papers of A.M. Rosenthal. I was lucky. The biggest, biggest plus, though, was that I was lucky to be able to talk to three people who knew and loved Kitty, um, and that was her lover, Marianne Zelanko. We had many conversations. Her best friend, a guy named Angelo Lanzone, and her brother, Bill Genovese. Um, and a little plug, um, Bill has spent the last 10 years making a movie called The Witness, and it's, been, it's airing now um, mm. around the country. It's also available on Netflix. It is well worth people checking out. Um, her brother was probably the closest family member to her, and he and I had many conversations about who Kitty was uh, to him. Um, he's a great example of somebody who was motivated by the false story of no one helping. He joins the Marines uh, during the Vietnam War and is uh, and volunteers for the most dangerous missions, loses both of his legs. So he spent the last 40 years in a wheelchair, uh, last 50 years almost, uh, in a wheelchair, and is still a really loving, thoughtful, forgiving kind of guy. Um, the murderer died earlier this year. He had been in prison ever since the crime was committed, pretty much. And when the murder hit, uh, when the death hit the news, um, Bill Genovese, Kitty's brother, wrote a letter to the Times saying that his family offered condolences to the family of, of the murderer because they knew what it was like to lose a loved one. And they wanted, they hoped, he hoped that the cycle of forgiveness could continue. He's a remarkable wow. guy. So knowing those three people helped me figure out who Kitty had been, where we started, right? Because there was nothing in her voice. I mm -hmm. didn't have her diaries or her letters to people. I didn't even have that many photographs. So she was this sort of very powerful presence who wasn't there. She mm -hmm. had been erased um, because of her lesbianism. Um, at that time, if the Times had talked about the fact that she was in a relationship with a woman, the story would have immediately focused on that, and it would never have been a 50-year story. It would have been like, oh, well, what do you expect? Mm -hmm. She would not have been an ideal victim. So the way to make her, the, the way to make the story be what they wanted it to be was to minimize. Silence that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think is the significance of keeping her story alive? I mean, you know, there, there had been some changes uh, because of the case, because of what happened yep. with the way that the New York Times have reported it. What do you think? Huge changes. For example, the biggest is there was no 911. Mm -hmm. So when the neighbors did do something, they had to either call the operator or look up the phone number of the local precinct. There was no way to contact the police quickly. That changed within the next three, four years. Um, and then, of course, went, went national. Um, so that's a huge change. The second thing is it led to this sort of study of why people do or don't help in a situation that's either an emergency or a dangerous situation. It led to a psychological theory called bystander syndrome. Mm. And these um, psychologists, psychiatrists sort of tried to understand what does it take to make us act when we see something wrong happening. Okay. Mm -hmm. The third thing is that Feminist activists in the 70s used the fact that it, there was a rape as well as a murder because mostly that also got eliminated from the coverage. It was only about the murder. They used Kitty's story and its sort of resilience 
to say this is an example of how common sexual assault is. It does it didn't even get mentioned. It was so much a part of the of the victimization of her, right? So they used it as a way to start anti-rape campaigns and sexual assault. Another interesting thing is that a, a couple of the neighbors who talked to police said things like, well, I heard screams, but I thought it was a lover's quarrel. Mm. And I figured it was none of my business, so I went back to bed. Now, that's a huge shift from then to now. And again, in terms of intimate partner violence, the story has been used positively to say, don't, no, there are ways to intervene. And there's now campaigns like at my school, UNLV, there's, there's campaigns to help students deal with sexual assault sexual violence without putting themselves at danger when they see a friend at risk. So those are four really important positive legacies from a story that wasn't true. And now in 2016, you know, for for someone who might be tuning in for the first time or, or hearing of Kitty's story for the first time, we get to say out loud that Kitty, Gen- Kitty Genovese uh, was a lesbian and her her uh, partner or survived partner, you know, you were able to speak to. She's still alive, still alive, and around with us. And now, if we loop that into the LGBTQ community and how we're honoring, you know, so many of those who had done incredible things within our community, you know, just kind of where our movements at. Mm. You know, what do you what do you think? What does that mean to mm. to you as mm. the historian to be able to give her the right? you know, description of who she is to give her back her voice years and years later. Yeah. And I think it's important, that's a great question, that that Marianne comes out in 2004. Mm. And if you think about what's happening in 2004, it's a lot around marriage equality. Right. And it's a lot around, you know, sort of, sort of recognizing same-sex couples. So it's interesting to me, Kitty's not outed as a sort of... Um, a renegade lesbian, you know, she's not she's not outed as a rebel. She's not outed as somebody really defying the norms. She's outed as part of a couple, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think that fit with the kinds of stories mm-hmm. that are being reported about lesbians, gay men, etc. At that time, right, yeah, right. And you know, for me, what's so significant about and thank you again for no one helped the book that everyone should go out and get a copy of um, <laughs> because. What's significant is learning these authentic and true stories of, of people within our community. When you think of someone like Alan Turing, for example, yes. who, um, you know, many of us think ended, you know, World War II and in, in his genius as far as like uh, creating the first computer. Mm. You know, mm. we didn't talk about th- the fact that he was gay mm-hmm. until years and years and years and years later. Mm-hmm. I think it's okay to talk about this person's impact and what, you know, um, what her death meant Mm -hmm. and how it has changed things for the better Mm -hmm. and that she was a part of our community. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, and what her life meant. I mean, Mm -hmm. the other thing is, you know, her, her, her notoriety is based on the last horrible hour of her life, but she had actually lived an amazing life. Mm -hmm. And really, as I said, the beginning is kind of representative of some of the people who are Mm -hmm. 
enabling us to be where we are today. I'm sure, you know, folks who are tuning in want to ask you many questions about this story in your new book, No One Helped. Um, tell us, you know, where you'll be and if people want to catch you, want to ask you questions uh, live and in person, where can they do that? <laughs> That's great. Thanks. Tomorrow night uh, at the GLBT Historical Society on 18th Street near Castro in San Francisco, starting at 7. Um, we'll be doing a, uh, a talk and a little bit of a reading, but more a conversation about the crime and about, I think, especially the impact on the LGBTQ community. Um, when Marianne came out in 2004, um, it, it hit all the gay newspapers big time, and everybody wondered what role homophobia had played in the story. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things I'm going to talk about. Oh, that's so awesome and so powerful. And for those who are not in San Francisco, uh, again, you can get, grab a copy of the book, um, you know, your iPad, Amazon, digitally, yeah. or in uh, the what I like, the actual paperback hardcover is yeah. fine, too. Yeah, it's yeah. uh, an e-book. Yeah, Marcy, yeah. thank you so much for joining us in studio, coming by and sharing this book and, and for the book itself and keeping the story alive. Thank you, Michelle. It's been such a treat. I really enjoyed being here. Thanks. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. Hi, my name is Courtney Ziegler, and I'm the founder of TransHack, which is an organization focused on creating technology for the trans community and visibility for trans technologists and entrepreneurs. Tech is like the new industrial revolution. There's so many opportunities for wealth building and wealth creation. It's perfect for the trans community, which experiences strong amounts of unemployment um, and low wages. TransHack um, provides an opportunity for trans individuals to take advantage of the wealth creation that the tech industry provides. Um, it's a space in which people who are in charge of innovation and development, all these awesome things that we are able to use through technology, are paid really well for that. And so I think that trans people should definitely have their hand in, in that space and creating that. And so TransHack provides that opportunity. I got my first computer when I was 15 years old in the 90s, and it changed my world ever since then. And I went on to become an independent filmmaker who had to uh, not only write direct my own films, but also was just kind of doing the technical stuff behind it, which is the editing and the capturing, all those things. I've always had this kind of tech-based background. I'm just very curious about a lot of things and just very fascinated about things that I don't know um, and things that can make me a better person. All of that motivates me. I'm just like, what else can I know? What else can I do? What else can I learn? Success to me means a number of things. I think right now in my life personally, it means waking up every day and feeling proud of the work that I'm doing and proud of myself. Just know what you want to get out of any particular industry. Um, it's not an industry that's 100% inclusive in the ways that it should be, in the ways that it's progressing towards, of all types of people in, in terms of creating the tech and the industry itself, building its infrastructure. Um, but that's also exciting in the fact that like um, people like me have a lot of room to change a lot of things and a lot of precedent to set. So, um, and that is the, the epitome of success. Spotlight on success and achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. 
Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Monday, October 3rd. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and in studio with us is is a good friend. Uh, he's right here in San Francisco and here, yes, like I said, in studio, Greg Carey, who is the chief patrol, chief of patrol for the Castro Community on Patrol organization here in San Francisco. I should mention that Castro Community on Patrol is celebrating their 10 years of service uh, tomorrow in the Castro. And the Ca- Castro is the iconic LGBTQ neighborhood, uh, as most people who visit San Francisco know of. So, Greg, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so before we talk about the 10th year anniversary of the organization and what you guys do, um, let's talk about the overall organization and in, in going back to the year it was founded. Uh, why do we have a special, I guess, you know, different uh, organization there for protection and or patrol in the Castro? The group started as a result of several high publicity um, street robberies with uh, sexual assault connected to them. And what happened was these were so egregious that the community really rose up and said, this shouldn't be happening in our community. And very quickly, a large number of volunteers got together to form the Castro Patrol. Uh, in our first year, we, we had a large number of volunteers. We had over 100 volunteers at the beginning. Uh, so that we were able to put patrols on the street. Uh, we actually had three teams every Friday and every Saturday night, and a team consists of three people. So we, we had a large number of volunteers so we could have a, a very high visibility. Um, we, we had a, a student at SF State that did a research paper on groups like ours about the end of our first year. And we learned some really interesting things from his research. The first one is that most groups like ours do not survive past the first 12 months. And the reason for that is when a group forms, whatever the original problem was usually disappears. And once that happens, many of the people who were originally engaged with the group become bored and leave. Um, But the groups that survive longer, like ours has, um, change our focus a bit from a reactionary to a preventive type of mode. Uh, so we have a smaller number of volunteers available now than we did in the beginning, but we still have a very dedicated group of people who are out in the streets patrolling. And we also do a lot of work as far as educating the public about their own personal safety. And we've also built some very nice affiliations with other organizations so that we're becoming more connected with other groups to help coordinate things around safety, crime, and things of that type. Uh, I'm so appreciative of organizations like Castro Community on Patrol. It's really the the community coming together to protect each other. Uh, let's talk about the history of violence in the Castro district or the gay neighborhood. And as you had mentioned, I mean, the birth of this organization was to address the violence that, you know, um, that the community was facing. And although, you know, one can argue that some of some of those incidents have decreased over time, it's hard not to remember remember the fact that the Castro used to be the popular destination for big celebrations like Halloween, Um, you know, and and just recently uh, the Pink Saturday celebration that the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, you know, used to put on and they cite violence as a reason for not putting on that party anymore. Talk to us about, you know, how how we've addressed those incidents and and if in fact 
uh, violence outside of the LGBTQ community and, and meaning, you know, the violence that um, the community faces from outside communities, uh, you know, it, has it has it really decreased or are we just moving into a different time? Well, all of the above, I suppose. Um, the Certainly LGBT um, groups and individuals are more accepted by the public than they were, let's say, 20 years ago. However, there is this constant undercurrent of making LGBT uh, the enemy for political and religious organizations. And of course, that tends to become more intense every four years whenever we go into a presidential election cycle. Um, so, So the propensity for violence is always there. We, I think um, in San Francisco, we can take some credit for the fact that we have not experienced some of the really severe violent attacks that many other large cities have in the last few years. And uh, we can't, you, you can't really prove a negative. Um, I was mm-hmm. in metrics for many years in industry, and, and so that's one of the things that prevention is hard to prove. But we, we believe the fact that we have not had any high incident uh, events in the Castro, or even in San Francisco, there have been a few minor events, but nothing as uh, as scary and dangerous as sure. some other cities. That a lot of that has to do with our presence. Uh, we maintain a very high, <clears throat> excuse me, high visibility, and <clears throat> excuse me, um, do a lot as far as uh, working with the media so that people know that we're there, and and that we're part of that safety environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does it make you sad, though, that, you know, some of our iconic celebrations have gone away? And again, the producers citing their own reasons and violence is one of them. Let me talk about Pink Saturday for just a moment. Um, for many years, that was a secret party. Mm. It was a party that uh, the LGBT community knew about. It was primarily promoted through word of mouth. In fact, for many many years, the sisters would uh, clamp down on any public information being released so that it didn't get out to the print uh, media or other media. And about five years ago, um, it became more public and suddenly the the straight community was aware of this thing that had been there that they didn't know about. And that started to attract people who were coming into the party to create violence. But until that publicity was out there, there really wasn't violence involved. It mm-hmm. was it was a huge mm-hmm. it was a huge celebration with uh, many people having too much to drink, but it wasn't inviting mm-hmm. assaults and attacks and, and homophobic right. slurs. And you know, again, uh, you know, the Castro community on patrol is strictly there for for the community, and so by no, you know, I'm I'm definitely not criticizing the organization in terms of the violence that has happened in the Castro, this is really to highlight the fact that, you know, that's the outside uh, forces, if you will, that are coming into what we have always been protective of, which is the gay neighborhood, the Castro. Um, I want to talk about the Castro for, for a second in kind of your opinion. You're celebrating 10 years, you know, tomorrow of this organization existing, and we'll give you the information how you can join in on this celebration soon. But how has the Castro changed? It went from, you know, t- I, I imagine 10 years ago, um, addressing gay people and their concerns regarding safety. Is that still, you know, the same today? Can we still, can we say the same today? One thing that Castro has become 
much more um, mixed as far as LGBT and straight uh, straight participants for the the various clubs. Primarily, we we have a very vibrant nightlife, but um, it's not exclusively gay anymore. It, mm-hmm. it may never have been 100% gay, but it is a lot more mixed. So what we see is a lot more people that are coming into the Castro, maybe from other parts of the city, but also other parts of the peninsula. So we have folks from East Bay and South Bay. And that brings in a mix of both straight people who may not be as accepting of gay people, but it also brings in even LGBT people from these other areas who might not realize that the Castro is not just an entertainment center, but we also have people that live in the neighborhood. <laughs> so it's residential. Uh, people have their apartments above the clubs. And so you have a, a lot of nonsense that goes on from people that just want to come and have fun in somebody else's town mm-hmm. without regard to the fact that people actually live there. So mm-hmm. I, that's one of the things that's changed is that it's becoming more mixed um, in a way, we're getting what we wanted, which is general acceptance, but that also comes with its distraction or detracting fact that there may not be as much uh, understanding and acceptance of folks that uh, live live in the community. Mm. Mm. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Greg Carey, who's chief of patrol at the Castro Community on Patrol, uh, who's celebrating their 10 year anniversary tomorrow, by the way. And um, we promise, I promise I will give you that information. But I have some really important questions I want to ask uh, Greg. You know, I think it is so amazing that we still have these resources available to us. You know, one of the biggest, um, I guess, you know, a dialogue that was happening this past year as far as pride is concerned uh, was that the community really thought of or wanted to see that we take back what safety means to our community. So not all the time uh, are segments of our own community going to feel safe, for example, um, when it comes to even police presence. You know, for an organization like yours, you had talked about even a small number of volunteers. Do you think that it is it is possible for us to get to a place where we can mobilize our own safety net, our own security? We shouldn't need that. Um, in fact, our group, unlike some other patrolling groups, uh, works very hard to not be a vigilante group. Our purpose is we are first observers and not first responders. When we, uh, when we see something, and, and I, I want to mention that a lot of our work involves medical calls, so it's not all around violence and, and, and crime, but it also involves a lot of people that need medical attention. Um, our purpose is to find these things and then bring in the professionals when, when we need them rather than taking over their roles. So part of what we've done is build a very strong uh, communications with groups like the police department and the district attorney's office so that they are our ally, our allies and not someone that we need to fear. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And so now we're celebrating 10 years, um, and you have been with the organization. I know you mentioned that you were not necessarily a founder, but, you know, what, three months shy of, of the 10-year anniversary? Your 10 years is coming up in, in February? Correct. Oh, so not three months, so like more like, like six, but... Um, Tell us what that means to you to, to, to just stay committed to this organization. You know, when I, when I first joined the organization, the first thing that I read about it is that um, you patrol for one time a month every for three-hour patrol and that you're walking for three hours. And I thought, you know, that's a really good way to stay in shape. 
so that's how I that's how I started was was uh, kind kind of outside of the box thinking. As I became more involved and and observed especially what was going on politically, locally, and, and nationwide, there was just this real feeling of needing to be sure that we take care of our own personal safety because if we don't, we can't depend on other people to do it for us. Mm. I think that applies a whole lot to the youth community. I mean, you know, we're seeing, of course, this is all we've ever wanted, right? After the liberation movements for queer kids to come out, you know, and and not have to, to fear that. But at the same time, some of the activities that we've seen um, those of uh, in the community do, like behaviors like socializing in a bar in a club, there's a level of responsibility I think we have in educating the youth community of, of taking care of themselves. Absolutely. Uh, we, we always have to be able to take care of our own personal safety first, uh, safety of our friends secondly, and then safety of the neighborhood after that. So that that's always ongoing. You know, one of the things about San Francisco is we do live in a bubble. Herb Cain Herb once described San Francisco as 49 square miles completely surrounded by reality. <laughs> Despite that, even students who have grown up in San Francisco report a large amount of homophobic um, threats and danger in San Francisco. And once you step out of San Francisco, it becomes even more and more scary to to come out uh, in whatever ways that we need to. Remember that most of the people that live in San Francisco came from somewhere else. So their experience is probably not as idealistic as those have, who have grown up in San Francisco. So there's a lot of work to do uh, before we are fully accepted into society mm. and really uh, can, can walk down the street without having to be concerned about what people are either thinking or saying about us. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so now we'll tell everyone how they can celebrate with you and the Castro Community on Patrol organization. So 10 year anniversary tomorrow, where, when and who will be there? So it starts at 7 p.m. tomorrow. It is at the uh, Ili Espresso Monte Mm. Cafe, which is at 2349 Market Street. Come early. We we have refreshments. We're we're going to have folks there from city government. We're going to have uh, our own uh, volunteers there. Some of the founding members will be there. So it's going to be a really nice mixture of people. We hope people have a chance to have conversation with each other, especially about not particularly our group, but safety in general. Mm-hmm. And then uh, enjoy refreshments, and and we'll have a few awards for for both our patrollers as well as some of our community partners. That's awesome. The other thing I want to mention is we sure. do training every two months for new volunteers. Um, we we have a small number of really dedicated volunteers, but the more volunteers that we have, the more frequently we are able to be out on patrol and, and doing mm-hmm. a job, a better job of, of helping people. So uh, I invite people to go to our website, which is castropatrol.org. We always have the next training date. Uh, our next training will be um, in November. I believe it's November. I don't remember the exact date. Go to the mm-hmm. website and check. <laughs> yeah. And also click the link to sign up and reserve a seat. But come enjoy the celebration tomorrow. But more importantly, uh, consider becoming a volunteer. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we ask for just one patrol a month, so it can be a very low commitment of time. Bring your friends, bring your coworkers, bring your family to, to be part of this. One question for you. Do you actually have to live in the Castro District to volunteer? No. In fact, one of our volunteers lives in Alameda and comes over about 
two or three times a month to be part of this. So no, there's no re- the only requirement is that you're over 18 and that you not don't have any warrants open that might mm-hmm. be embarrassing if uh, the police see who you that you're walking down the street and they want want to nab you. <laughs> I guess I should check my records. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we'll, we'll talk to us. We'll look at them as long as they're not something where you might end up in handcuffs. We'll, we'll, we'll work through it. <laughs> I do have one last question for you. And, uh, you know, it's political season. Why not? And San Francisco um, it has been, I, I guess, I don't I, I don't want to use the word controversial, but it's been heated. It's been heated in, in a lot of ways. So Castro is uh, Scott Wiener's district, isn't it? And it's yes, his last yes. term in as fact, supervisor. Scott, Scott was one of the founders. He, of, he was on our board of advisors up until the time that he re- ran for supervisor. So yeah, he's part of our history. That's great. That's my that was my question in terms of like, you know, how has he contributed to the Castro and kind of preserving it as the gay neighborhood, but also keeping it safe and. So he lives in the neighborhood, so so that helps. Having one more gay person in the neighborhood helps a little bit. Um, and as I mentioned, he was one of the founders of Castro Patrol. I think one of the things that he has really done is he has really worked hard to try to repopulate the police force. Our police department is short at least 300 officers and probably more like 500 when you take into account the fact that the city has grown since the original target numbers were established. He has really worked hard to bring back the academies for hiring new police officers and continues to keep those going. So as we as we start to repopulate the police department, hopefully the work that we uh, are doing becomes less need, needed. But um, I'm pretty sure it's always going to be needed to some degree. So, mm-hmm. so we're always going to, I think, have a need. It's just a case that right now, with such a shortage of police officers, there are often times that, that we're kind of out there on our own. Greg, thank you so much for all that you do and for this wonderful organization and keeping us safe. That is so amazing. You're welcome. And happy 10-year anniversary. Oh, it feels great. (laughs) All that information can be found again at castropatrol.org. And the 10-year celebration will happen tomorrow, October 4th, from 7 to 10 p.m. at Illy's Cafe on Market Street in the heart of the Castro. So make sure you come out if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area to support this iconic and legendary Castro Community on Patrol organization that keeps us safe while we're also having fun. Don't go away. When we come back, I close out the show. So, yeah, you'd want to come back for my thoughts, I think. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Hey, it's Michelle Miao. It's hard these days not to get a question about when I'm getting married or when I'm having kids. I get it. Marriage equality is legal now. I'm in my 30s and in a committed relationship. Marriage may not have a time limit, but what about having kids? I have a lot I want to accomplish before growing my family, like becoming the next Oprah. If I want to wait, what are my options? Join myself and our partner Pacific Fertility Center for a free seminar on egg freezing November 3rd from 6 to 8 p.m. Register at PacificFertilityCenter.com. Space is limited, so register now. That's PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. 
It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Monday, October 3rd. Again, I can't believe it's October. And then in October, it's Halloween. So, you know, I'll gear up all month long for Halloween because my brother's birthday is on Halloween, not because I actually like Halloween. And then right after Halloween, you know, it's November. So then you're gearing up for Thanksgiving. And then after Thanksgiving, you gear up for December. And then in December, it's the holidays. And depending on which holiday you're celebrating, that could be an entire month-long, you know, celebration, festival, holiday. And then after the holidays, it's the new year. I'm already writing off 2016. I think 2016 was a bullshit year. All the coolest people died, like, you know, the famous musicians such as Bowie and Prince. A few notable people died. I mean, even people in my own life died. And then now, yeah, I said it in the beginning of the the show, and I I don't know, it was just kind of um spontaneous or it just I just I guess blurted blurted it out. And maybe it was just like my own way of coping with my uh, heartbreak. But I'm now single <laughs> at 34 years old. And I have this kind of weird, uncomfortable chuckle. Because part of me, a part of me feels like, you know, it's it's it, it's time. There, uh, there were a lot of issues that I personally had that I think that I needed to work on as an individual before I even got to a place where I could say, I do and be committed to someone. But at the same time, you know, I'm a nesting lesbian. I enjoy warm bosoms and <laughs> romantic films on the weekend. And that comfort level is now gone. I don't really know how to cope. So if you have any suggestions for me, head to michellemeow.com. Let me know um, how you deal with, with breakups. I, I think, you know, I don't know. I was driving in. I was listening to Sarah Bareilles and I started crying. Then I got to the radio studio and I forgot about it and uh, and then was myself again. So who knows what's going to happen on my drive home because um, I'll be going home to packing up my stuff and moving out. So being single at 34, it's not a big deal, right? Again, let me know at michellemeow.com. I figured, you know, we'll end the show with thoughts on uh, breaking up at, at, at in your 30s. Um, I thought about going home to watching some Bridget Jones's diary type stuff because <laughs> there's a new one coming out, but also, uh, I don't know, music, maybe, maybe music will help or, or make me cry. What are some good breakup songs? So I'm looking them up right now on YouTube. Uh, and it's asking me breakup songs for women or breakup songs for guys. <laughs> I, don't really know. I feel like I'm in between a guy and, and a woman. So how about breakup songs for lesbians? Let's see what YouTube, what does YouTube pull up? Uh, breakup songs, Les when, it, when a Heart Breaks by Ben Rector for Lesbian Darling. What's that all about? Oh, Tegan and Sarah, Walking with Ghost Lyrics. 
let's play this and see and see what that's all about. I don't know if we could pull up this computer. There should be uh it should it should work. No? No. That's not working. Nope. That's not Oh my god, this is like the saddest breakup ever. I can't even get a song to play in the studio. Uh, anyway, you know, I okay. What else are they saying? So Tracy Chapman, give me one one reason. Um, Ani DeFranco, yeah, these are definitely lesbian breakup songs. Indigo Girls, Last Tears, Liz Fair, Divorce Song. There's a ton. Full of Me by Michelle DeGiocello. Uh, duh, Love is Everything by Katie Lang Melissa Etheridge, Breathe Why didn't I think of this? I guess I'll just put that up on my music playlist Anyway, thanks so much for joining me here on the program Um, You know, speaking to author Marcy Gallo About the story of Kitty Genovese it, it's, it's really interesting We actually got to a point where we were talking About how the media impacts you know, our feelings and our judgment and our bias. And I know that that's an ongoing conversation. A lot of people, especially during this political election season, sees that there is major bias in these these big media companies, um, like the New York Times, of course, and even uh, down to these blogger-type sites like, um, you know, I guess uh, <laughs> Mike.com or... I don't know, just Jared, even like gossip sites and stuff, you know, are talking about the election. But I made a great point when I talk about even independent production and, and a network like Progressive Voices Network, as well as, you know, Coffee TV, which is a local you know station, who actually is tuning in. And I think with Progressive Voices Network, you've got listeners who are starving for more informative and educational content versus you know someone who's going to really scroll through headlines and which some of these sites have been popular in doing. And when you look at like local or tra- traditional media like television, you know, some there are people in this country and I know this is hard for even young people to believe, but there are people in this country who don't have access to things like cable and also do not have access to streaming capabilities and or the funds to become subscribers of like a Hulu or a Netflix or CNN or, you know, all these networks now who are charging people um, separately to subscribe to their app. So you can stream them if you're like an Apple TV user. So who is actually tuning in to Standard TV and who's producing content for, for those types of television networks? And I think, you know, newscasts, um, ABC and, and all those guys are still producing newscasts. So if you get your news that way, you get a very local perspective as, as, as that turns out. And then if you're someone who is, say, for example, you don't have access to the outside world, you might be incarcerated, you have access to those local channels. And so I'm bringing this up because it gives you an idea of where knowledge lies. Who knows more? Well, I guess that's up to your interpretation. If you're a Facebook user and you think reading headlines make you smarter, I guess, you know, that's the kind of person you are. Um, Just be careful where you're consuming your media is all I'm trying to say because a story like Kitty Genovese teaches us 
we could, you know, the wrong information could be in the wrong hands. Um, thanks again for tuning in. For everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. I have loaded everything up on that. I'll be okay. I'm just being a sad sap today, but I promise you, I'll be okay, and I'll be here tomorrow with John Zipper. See you tomorrow.